And now, with her weekly commentary, That's How I See It, we go to Sleeza Givens with breaking news from the palace. Thanks, Hezekiah. Today, drama, drama, revenge, and more drama at the palace. Our story begins with our good King Xerxes having a difficult time falling asleep. So much so that he asked one of his attendants to come in and read to him his daily journals. Apparently, counting sheep is beneath his royalness. The the attendant just happened upon the account of Mordecai saving the king from an attempt on his life. When the king was told that nothing had been done to thank Mordecai, it totally bugged him all night. So much so that by morning he was eagerly looking for a way to rectify the situation. Just then, Haman, the king's second in command, yes, came in and said, or was looking to talk with the king about impaling that very same Mordecai. Talk about a sticky situation. Get it? Stick. E. (laughs) Never mind. Anywho, when the king saw Haman, he asked him what he would do for a man who the king especially wanted to honor. And Haman, being Haman, thought that the king must be talking about Haman. Loser. Anywho, he told the king what he would do is put a royal robe and crown on this man and have someone important lead him on the royal horse around town, exclaiming in a loud voice, this is what's done for the man who the king especially wants to honor. Well, the king loved that idea. And so he told Haman to go and do it right away to Mordecai. Can you imagine his face? So off he went and did it, not that he had any choice. He was mortified. Wait, no. He was mortified. (laughs) I crack myself up. Anywho, after the deed was done, Haman went home to his wife and family and friends, and he... Um, And our sources tell us that his family and friends were very supportive of, of him during this time. Not. In fact, after he told them the story of what happened, they told him that he was as good as dead. With family and friends like that, who needs enemies? Just then, Haman was swept away back to the palace for the second dinner that Queen Esther had prepared for just him and King Xerxes. At dinner, the king asked Esther once more what it was that she wanted from them. Immediately, she started to plead and beg for her life and for the life of her people, stating that there had been a plan to annihilate her entire nation. Well, the king was horrified and asked what kind of monster would do this. Apparently, he forgot that he was the one who signed that edict. But Esther never skipped a beat. She looked her enemy in the eye and said, that vile Haman. Haman was terrified as the king, in a fury, stormed off into the palace garden. Haman fell onto the couch the queen was sitting on and begged and pleaded for the, for his life like the coward that he was. When the king came back in and saw Haman all over his queen, his fury turned murderous. Just then, One of the attendants, whom I lovingly refer to as Captain Obvious, pointed out that giant pole that Haman was, Haman had built for Mordecai. Talk about overkill. It was 75 feet tall. 
stick him on it, said the king, and that is exactly what they did. Impaled on the pole, intended for Mordecai. Not a happy ending for our Haman. Haman's entire estate was then given to Queen Esther, who, after revealing who Mordecai was to her, entrusted the entire estate to Mordecai. But there still was a problem. Jewish Annihilation Day was just around the corner, and because the king had signed that edict with his signet ring, there was nothing that even he could do to stop it. So, once again, the king took off that signet ring and handed it to Mordecai and told him to go and fix the situation, which is exactly what Mordecai did. He wrote another edict exclaiming that any Jew who was attacked or threatened could defend himself and his family. Not only that, but they were able to plunder any of their enemies' possessions. All of a sudden, Jewish Annihilation Day just didn't seem so fun. So, what happened was, after that, Mordecai left the king's presence in a robe of violet, and all was sunshine and joy for the Jews. They celebrated, they were honored. And on top of that, all of the non, many non-Jews became Jews because now it was dangerous to not be a Jew. Haman had intended to wipe out the nation of Israel and had thrown them into a panic. But when Queen Esther trusted her God and she intervened with the king, her God took care of the rest. Haman's plan boomeranged not only back on himself, but on his whole family, and his ten sons were also impaled on that very same pole. On Jewish Annihilation Day, the, the Jewish people were able to defend themselves and kill any of their enemies who wanted to hurt them. And now, it's a national holiday. Mordecai the Jew is second in command to King Xerxes, and everybody loves him. I know I do. I guess it's true what they say about the Jewish God. Revenge is a dish best served by him. As for this reporter, I'm thinking about changing my name from Sleza Givens to Sleza Givenstein. Back to you, Hezekiah. On March 31st, 2008, the band Sons of Maxwell flew from uh, Nova Scotia to Omaha, Nebraska to present a concert. They flew through Chicago and had a layover there and, uh, and changed planes. As they were deplaning at Chicago's O'Hare Airport off their United Airlines flight, um, the, the, one of the passengers who was seated behind him said, Look out there, the, the baggage crew is throwing guitars outside the plane. The Sons of Maxwell Band turned around and looked and saw their instruments being thrown from the hold of the plane onto the luggage cart, literally thrown across the, the runway. Um, when they arrived in Omaha, Nebraska, Dave Carroll discovered that his Taylor guitar, worth about $3,500, had a broken neck. He spent the next year trying to get United Airlines to compensate him for his broken guitar. Uh, at first to replace it, and then finally he said, you know what, if you'll just give me $1,200 in flight vouchers, 
uh, so that our band can continue to travel. That's what it costs to get the, the guitar repaired. It's not really the same, but that'll, that'll take care of it. United Airlines said, no, we're not doing it. So Dave Carroll did what any singer-songwriter would do. He wrote a song and made a video. He actually wrote three songs about his, uh, about his uh, um, experience. Called, the first song was called United Breaks Guitars. Uh, he said that uh, immediately when he wrote it, it was really just more cathartic than anything. He wasn't trying to uh, seek revenge or do anything. It, he was just frustrated. So he wrote this song so to have a great story to tell. They, they created a video, put it online, and at the end of the day in July of 2009 that it, that it hit uh, the internet on YouTube, at the end of the day he went to bed and six people had watched it. He thought it was great. He felt real good about it. The next day, 150,000 views on YouTube of this video. And United called him and said, what would it take to make this video go away? Um, By the end of the week, the video had been seen a million times on the internet. Uh, Dave Carroll, over the next three months, uh, uh, did more than 200 interviews on uh, television and radio about his experience with, uh, with United. He actually said to United, you know what, I don't want your money. You can give it to a, to a charity, um, but this is, this is fine. Thank you very much. Um, within four weeks of the release of the video, United Airlines stock had decreased $180 million dollars. Taylor Guitars, on the other hand, gave Dave Carroll two separate brand new Taylor Guitars to use for his next videos, product placement kind of a deal. Um, to date, that video, if you go home today and look at it, don't look at it now, but if you go look for that video, United Breaks Guitars, it's been seen 19 million times on the internet. What is it about revenge that is so fulfilling? Why is it that when we hear these words, hello, my name is Indigo Mandoya, you killed my father, prepare to die, that we say, yes, I want that, I want, I want that revenge, sweet revenge. Perhaps the more relevant question is, why is it when someone hurts me that I want to hurt them back? Why is it that when I see injustice, I think, man, that person has got to get theirs and more? Hold that thought, if you would, because just as Sleza described, Haman, the man that we have been booing for the last three weeks, he got served today in today's episode of Veiled. If you're jumping into the service, into this series for the first time, um, here's the setting. In uh, 486 BC, the Jewish nation has been in captivity for about 100 years. They're in captivity with Persia at this point in time. And in 486, uh, Persia has a king named Xerxes that comes to power. He chooses uh, a beautiful young gal named Esther to be his queen. She's Jewish, but Xerxes doesn't know that. Esther was raised by her cousin Mordecai, and uh, Mordecai works for the king. As, uh, as time goes on, Mordecai hears about a plot that exists to take Xerxes' life. And he tells Esther, Esther tells King Xerxes, and the two men are executed. That's kind of the end of the story. Uh, chapter 3 in Esther starts with, uh, with uh, the second in command for Xerxes, a man named Haman. 
Haman's a bad guy. He comes to power. Um, he's the second most powerful guy in the kingdom, and everybody's supposed to bow to him. Mordecai, because he's Jewish, won't bow to Haman. And so uh, Haman gets really angry. He goes in and talks to Xerxes and says, uh, Xerxes, there's these people that, that uh, are subversive. We need to exterminate him. And Xerxes says, go ahead. And so an edict is, is uh, passed. It goes throughout the country to kill all of the Jews. Mordecai, all the Jews go into mourning. Um, Mordecai comes to Esther and says, uh, Esther, um, probably in the, in the moment that is the most significant moment in Esther's life, says to her, Esther, maybe you've become queen for this very moment so that you can go and plead the case of our people uh, before the king. Esther says, Mordecai, you don't understand. If I go to the king and the king doesn't extend his scepter, I will die. I'll be executed in that moment. And, uh, and uh, Esther goes on to say, you know what, I'll tell you what. Gather together all of the Jews in Susa, in the capital city. Pray for me and fast for the next three days. I'll do the same, and then I'll go see to the king. She goes to the king, um, and, and the king does extend his scepter. So she lives, and the king says to her, Esther, what is it that you want? And, uh, and Esther says, I want you to come to dinner tonight and bring Haman. Uh, I've got this special dinner prepared. So Haman and, and, uh, and Xerxes come to the palace for dinner that night. And uh, after dinner, Xerxes says, Esther, what is it that you want? I, I'll, I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom. And Esther says, I want you to come to dinner tomorrow night instead. And that leads us to what Sleza has described for us that starts in Esther chapter 6. Uh, Xerxes can't sleep. And so he has, a, he has somebody come and read to him to, to get him through the night. The, the servant just happens to read about the time that Mordecai discovers this plot on Xerxes' life uh, and saves his life. The guys are executed. And, um, and so the next morning, uh, Xerxes is just disturbed because he, hasn't, he discovers that, that Mordecai never got any kind of recognition for what he did. Haman comes in, Haman's ready to kill Mordecai because even though he's experienced these banquets, Mordecai still won't bow to him. And so uh, Haman comes in ready to ask Xerxes to, to uh, impale Mordecai. And Xerxes says, hey, wh- what should we do for somebody who's done something really significant for the king? Haman thinks he's talking about himself and he says, you know what, have somebody really important um, go before him all through the kingdom and, and say, this is, this is what happens to somebody who takes care of the king. Um, and then Haman discovers that Haman is going to be the one who is leading that horse with Mordecai uh, on the back of the horse. At the end of that parade, uh, Esther chapter 6, verse 12, it says this. Afterward, Mordecai, after the parade, Mordecai returns to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. At that dinner, at that dinner that night, uh, king Xerxes again says, Esther, Esther, what is it that you want? And in that instance, in that setting, Esther says, you know what? I'm Jewish. My people are set to be uh, eliminated, annihilated. And it's all because of this vile Haman. Um, 
Xerxes goes crazy. <clears throat> He's ready to, uh, uh, to, to kill Haman in that moment and uh, discovers that that pole is there. He, uh, he goes out on the patio, comes back in. Xerxes, or, uh, Haman is pleading for his life. He's groping at, at Esther to try and do that. Xerxes comes back in and thinks that he is sexually assaulting his wife Esther and, and his anger really goes nuclear. Discovers the pole, uh, has Haman impaled, and, uh, and the deed is done. Chapter 8 of Esther, verse 1. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Don't forget that Haman was a wealthy, wealthy man. He had offered $12.5 billion of silver uh, for, the, for the edict to be passed and, and sent through the kingdom. Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had, had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she rose and stood before him. Don't miss what happens there in verse 4. Remember that no one could go to the king without being summoned, or they would be executed. And what happens in verse 4, what that describes is that Esther had done this a second time, as she made her case before the king. Uh, Xerxes extends the scepter and Esther lives, but Esther's again willing to put her life on the line. This time, without the prayer and fasting, she's willing to do whatever it takes so that her people will be saved. Because Haman is dead, that edict that has been passed is still in effect and every, joy, every Jew is still going to be destroyed. Have you ever heard the phrase, the law of the Medes and the Persians? Is that a phrase that anybody used? I, I, I heard it a lot in my home growing up. Because what that law means, the law of the Medes and the Persians means a law can't be revoked. It can't be changed. It's unalterable. My dad, I can remember, would say, you know what? Curfew is not the law of the Medes and the Persians. Um, by that, he meant that there was a law that I had to be home at a certain time. But if there was a compelling reason for me to stay out later, if there, if there was stuff going on, all I had to do was call. And curfew could be moved uh, back. It wasn't the law of the Medes and the Persians. There were, however, however, other laws in our house that were the laws of the Medes and Persians. They didn't change at all. But this law of the Medes and the Persians we experienced earlier in this book, in chapter 2. If you think back to when we were in chapter 2, it starts off and, um, and Xerxes is thinking about Vashti. He comes home, there's no queen because he's banished her. And when you read that, it really kind of paints this picture that he wants Vashti back, but he can't call her back into her role because the law had been passed that said that she would be banished, the law of the Medes and the Persians. Esther chapter 8, verse 7. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now, write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. So Xerxes authorizes Mordecai to write a new law to come up with a solution for this edict that, that Haman had, uh, had passed. Mordecai's solution is a law that parallels the law that Haman had made. 
Haman had said, on this day, all the Jews can be exterminated, all their possessions can be taken, they'll be wiped off the face of the earth. Mordecai's law, Mordecai's edict that he sends throughout the kingdom says, you know what, on that day when all the Jews can be killed, all the Jews are allowed to gather together and to defend themselves. They can do whatever is necessary. They can take whatever force is necessary to defend themselves. And anyone who attacks the Jews, they can attack back, they can kill, and they can take all of their possessions instead. When the news of Mordecai's new law was sent throughout the kingdom, uh, verse 16 says this, It was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province, in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. And then the story comes to a climax with the beginning of chapter 9. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in his palace, in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what, what they pleased to those who hated them. We've spent the last seven weeks in the book of Esther trying to see kind of what the overriding theme was, trying to see where God is in this process. And as we've talked each week, the theme really is that God is working in every circumstance imaginable. That God's working when when government leaders are messed up. That God's working when you don't get the recognition that you expect. That God's working in the midst of evil. God is working in every aspect. That's the theme of the book of Esther. There are five kind of sub-themes that I just want to highlight today as we bring this series to the close. The first is this. If you're feeling forgotten and persecuted like Mordecai, know that God doesn't lose track of anyone. If you're feeling all alone, if you're feeling like, man, who am I? What Does my life matter at all? I mean... I live in Langsburg. Is my life significant at all? Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Um, you are not forgotten by God. God doesn't lose track of anyone. You don't have to be in some big position. You don't have to have all kinds of trappings of stuff. God doesn't lose track of anyone. Take hope in that. The second truth is this. If you're in a position of power, know that God has given you influence for a purpose. God has given you influence for a purpose. Now, again, you may be saying, you know what? I don't have any influence. I live in DeWitt. Uh, Who am I going to influence? Let me just ask some questions. Are you a parent? Man, you're in a position of power and influence. 
Do you have a job where you work with other people? Maybe, you're, maybe you manage some people in an office. Maybe you own a company. Maybe you don't do any of those things. You just work in your role, but it, you're in a setting that you interact with a lot of other people. You're in a position of power. You're, you're in a position of power in your life group because you have the ability to influence people there. You're in a position of power if you're in a community uh, group, in some kind of service organization, Kiwanis, Rotary, any of that kind of stuff. You're, you're in a position of power if you're a coach for a kid's team. God has placed you in a position of power. He has given you influence for a purpose. The question is, how can you use your influence? How can you use your position to accomplish more than just a life of comfort and pleasure for you. What can you do? A few weeks ago, a man named Bob Buford died. Uh, he's an author. He, uh, he's invested a ton in, in God's kingdom. Uh, Buford wrote a book called Halftime that I've referenced before. Halftime is a, is a book that, that challenges people as they go. It actually describes the process that you go, as an, uh, go through as an adult, that you go through this process where you're just trying to survive initially as an adult. And then you reach some level of success. And when, once you hit that level of success, ultimately you realize that success is not fulfilling in any kind of lasting way. And that you, be, that you then begin this pursuit of significance. Not success, but significance. How can my life matter? How can I make a difference in the world around me? God has given you influence for a purpose. Let me just say this about that. Don't underestimate your voice. Doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, where you're placed. Don't underestimate the power that one person has to make a difference. God has put you where you are so that he can use you in his scheme of things, in his kingdom to accomplish his will. Don't underestimate your voice, but also don't overestimate your importance. Haman, Haman thought he was all that in a bag of chips. He didn't realize that that pole that he had prepared to impale Haman on, or to impale Mordecai on, was going to be used for him. Haman thought he was everything, and all of that came apart. Romans chapter 2, Paul writes and says, Because of your stubbornness, your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. When we think that we're great, when we think that it's all about us, that everything that we experience, everything that we have is because of us, man, we make a huge mistake. It doesn't take God any time at all to help us understand that that's not true. God has given you influence for a purpose. Use it for him. Third thing is this. Trust that God's vengeance is better than anything that you can conceive. Trust that God's vengeance is better than anything we can conceive. What do you think was the best Mordecai hoped for with Haman? You know, he won't bow down to Haman. Haman obviously hates him. Haman passes this law that the Jews are going to be killed. I think Mordecai thought, you know what? If, If Haman could just lose his job, if he could just lose his position of influence, that would be enough. Get him out of the palace. That's enough. Instead, what happens? Haman is humiliated. Haman's reputation is destroyed. His fortune is lost. His position is lost. He loses his life and his family is killed. 
Haman goes from being second in command in this kingdom to being on display for everyone to mock and make fun of with his body 75 foot in the air hung on the pole. Haman's plan to annihilate the Jews ultimately ends up um, uh, empowering the Jews and, and uh, their favor growing. Haman's fortune, everything he had, is given to Mordecai. Mor- Mordecai could never have imagined any of those things. He just wanted Haman gone. God's vengeance is better than anything that we can conceive. Romans 12, I referenced just a few weeks ago, says, Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. We've, we've talked about that before, that, that revenge just causes escalation in the process. It doesn't do anyone any good. When we take revenge into our own hands, it never evens the score. It just doesn't happen. We've got to let God take revenge because when God takes revenge, it's so much better. And it removes all that emotional junk from our hearts. God's vengeance is much more thorough than anything that we can conceive. He has said that he will avenge. It may not be immediate. It may not even be here on earth. But it will be appropriate, and it will be final, and it will be anything than uh, than any idea that you have, it will be better than. Fourth thing is this. The providence of God may be as dramatic as any um, miracle of God. The providence of God may be as dramatic as the miracles of God. Uh, Sometimes we want a miracle. We We want to see God jumping in and changing things supernaturally, right? That's a miracle where God moves supernaturally in the, in the events of, uh, of our lives. But sometimes his providential hand, God working through natural circumstances, can, can leave us with, with our jaw just dropped at the, at the hand of God. Just think for a second about the story of Esther that we've talked about for the last seven weeks. Of all the beautiful young women in the Persian kingdom, a kingdom that probably has more than 50 million people at this point in time, Xerxes just happens to choose Esther to be his queen. When Bigthana and Teresh plot plot to kill Xerxes, Mordecai just happens to be in the vicinity and hear about the plot and just happens to be a cousin to the queen who just happens to be able to tell the king about this plot. In some breach of protocol that just happened, Mordecai is never acknowledged for saving Xerxes' life. And on the night before Haman is ready to have him executed, the king just happens to not be able to sleep and just happens to read the story about Mordecai saving his life. Uh, Haman's wealth just happens to be given to Mordecai on his death. The Persian law that can't be rescinded just happens to be the right vehicle for the Jews to be able to defend themselves when a new law is passed. The providence of God, God's involvement in the circumstances of our lives can be as dramatic as any miracle of God. Don't ask necessarily for a miracle to happen. Ask for God to work and watch what he does. Last thing is this. Remember and celebrate the victories of God. 
This victory in the life of Esther, in the life of the Jewish people, was so significant, so important, that it became a national holiday for the Jews that they still celebrate today, 2,500 years later, the Feast of Purim. It's incredible. It was designed to help them remember what God had done, remember and celebrate the victories of God. When God does something terrific in your life, when he answers prayer, when he works in some kind of spectacular way, You've got to figure out a way to remember that, to make some markers for that. Because if you don't, you will forget. Satan will do everything that he can to make you forget the way that he has worked in the past. Esther chapter 9 verse 20 says this, Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. If you drop down to verse 28, it says, These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family, in every province, in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. We have got to remember. We've got to celebrate how God works in our lives the work that he has done in the past. We started this series talking about this idea that the name of God is never found in the book of Esther, and yet the story of Esther is the story of God's work in in the life of the Jewish people, and specifically in the life of Esther. This, the theme of this entire book is to remind us that God is always at work. And I, I, want to, I just want to leave you with that thought. We've got to look around. We've got to be conscious. We've got to constantly be thinking, what is it that God is doing at this moment in time in my life? To help give you kind of a visual to help remember that, uh, I want you to take a look on screen at this video. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? Go! The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? It's easy to miss something you're not looking for. It's easy to walk through life, think you do everything on your own, think, where is God in this story? What is it? You know, why has God left me alone? God is the moonwalking bear in your life. He's there, present, accomplishing his purposes. He's working through your life to do his will. Don't miss it. 
Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story, for the story of Esther. God, we thank you that that it's a part of the scripture and that it teaches us so much about who you are, that you are passionate for us, that you never leave us alone, that you never forsake us, that you're working even when we can't see it. God, I, I ask today that you would open our eyes, that we would see glimpses of your glory, glimpses of your hand in our lives, that we could, that we could just have a sense of what you're doing. God, we know that that's, uh, that's just a request. We don't have to have that. But we want to say together today, God, that we do trust you. We trust that you are working, that you're involved in every aspect of what's going on. Now, Lord, I ask that you'd be with people right now that are, that are struggling, that are hurting, that feel abandoned, that feel like, oh, I don't know if God's working in my mess right now. Um, show yourself, Lord. Comfort them. Surround them with your glory. God, for, for people who are, everything's going great for, that they're experiencing success. Help, help them to see you and to have their lens change from success to significance. God, use, work in their lives to, to turn people to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.